free drop here, no doubt. Yeah, free drop. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. Made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Good morning, Sean Zock. Good morning, Drop Zone listeners. It's Monday. The live season is in the books. We have an off week coming up on the PGA Tour, which means it's time to talk about a few different things that happened this past week, these past few days, and this past year. Sean, where do you want to start? I want to start, Dylan, by saying hello to you. Uh, Happy Monday. Happy uh, start to this new drop zone. And thanks to the people who texted me segment ideas. I'm not sure we're going to use them all. There were a couple goofy ones, but thank you to everyone who's listening. And uh, before we really get started with the show, the other thing I want to mention, Dylan, is that we're going to start. The New England Patriots are back. Well, that's a thing. The Packers suck. The Pats seem to be a little bit better. No, they're bad. They're still bad. Don't don't mistake anything about the Patriots. Sorry. Continue. But if people are listening on Spotify, uh, we hope to add questions to each episode polls if you will i think it's just some fun functionality that spotify is offering that if you tap on our episode there will be a poll waiting there for you hopefully every single week that has something to do with that episode Um, and if it doesn't have something to do with that episode that's where you can actually write in questions and stuff and we will hopefully get to them that's one way of communicating with us you know, beyond. innovation season, Sean. Exactly. I like it. Yes. We're rethink private equity has taken over the drop <laughs> zone and they're looking for efficiencies. Uh, sure, sure, sure. I would love some private equity to take over the drop zone. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, Dylan, I have written up, gosh, a lot of words to deliver to you about Colin Morikawa. So hopefully it comes out in a very coherent fashion, but the man won for the sixth time on the PGA tour this weekend. That is more than a lot of people. Uh, he is 26 years old, going on 27. And I've got a couple questions to kick off this little open of the podcast, Dylan. They're questions for you. I want you to say yes or no or give us you know, your most brief but um, solid answer. First question, does Colin Morikawa excite you? Um, does Colin Morikawa excite me? Yes. When I was watching on... Sunday and he was doing what he was doing. Uh, he was exciting me because God, he, when he's good, he's so good. I was hoping you might say no, but for, for now we'll allow you to say yes. Well, I, I a- didn't, it wasn't an immediate, like it, it wasn't an immediate yes, to be clear. Yeah. That was a yes. But, um, how about this? Is Colin Morikawa a better golfer than Patrick Cantlay? No. How about Xander Shoffley? Um, no. How about Tyrrell Hatton? Yes. Okay. Okay. So he's not top five, but he would be top 10, right? Um, does Colin Morikawa's personality get you going? Like when you hear that he is playing in this thing called the Netflix Cup with Justin Thomas and Max Homa and Ricky Fowler, is he one of the first two people on that list that you are interested in watching? Man, I'm really being put on the stand right now. Uh, no, I don't think that Colin has proven that uh, his personality is the most dynamic thing about him. Good. No, you're not on the stand. This is You're not under oath, but I just want to kind of set the scene with how I believe um, people rate Colin Morikawa. And so last question, is he overrated or underrated? Jeez. I think he's underrated. I think this year he's been underrated. Okay. But I think maybe that's what you're going to tell me. It's a little bit of what I'm going to tell you, but uh, I would have loved to have asked you this a week ago, right? Before he gets his sixth tour win, his first win in multiple years, because I think you would have said overrated because you and I have talked a good bit about Morikawa this year. You were there in Hawaii, right? During the tour, uh, the tournament of champions, right? And he's on cruise control on Sunday and then essentially chokes away a victory. John Rahm kind of kicks off his player of the year campaign. That's how this year started. We're coming up on the one year anniversary of that. Um, I think if I would have asked you a week ago, is he overrated or underrated? You would have 
probably call them overrated. And I think there would have been merit to it because we are a group of people that uh, we exercise on what have you done for me lately, right? We always overreact when there's a victory and we un- we overreact when there hasn't been one lately. Um, and for the record, I understand that. But Dylan, do you remember who he was competing with on that Sunday of his first major championship win? This is a man with six tour wins, two major championships, but at the 2020 PGA where he really kind of landed on the scene, who was he competing with? I mean... Gosh, a bunch of people. Yes, it was Bryson. Yes, uh, Wolf. Uh, yes, DJ in there. Yes, it was a shootout. Cameron Champ was in there. He's the kind of only weird one. But you had Paul Casey. You had DJ. You had Brooks Kepka talking shit on Saturday night about every other major champion um, that didn't seem to exist in that leaderboard. Tony Finau did a little but not a lot on Sunday. A bunch of these guys shot 68, 69, 70. Morikawa shot 64. He hit the shots, but you know that I am keen about this information. He didn't really have to hit the insane pressure shots, the shots that really unnerved people because there were no fans at 2020 PGA Championship at Harding Park. So he wins his first major, but he does it in front of basically nobody, but he does it against a bunch of guys who really could have stole it from him. Then we fast forward a year later Within 12 months, I think it was 11 months later, he wins at Royal St. George's at the Open, and suddenly, like, it is on. It's two majors before he had turned 25 years old. This is a guy who's ball striking like Tiger Woods. Uh, And suddenly, we react like we're supposed to do with what have you done for me lately, and we start charting out his wins, the number of weeks he's going to be world number one. Uh, And the truth is, like I just said, those tournaments were there for the taking, and he wasn't necessarily expected to claim them. And whether it's like good luck for him, bad luck for them, or just like the luck of the draw that week, he had the wins. And since then, until freaking yesterday, there were nothing. There was nothing. There were no wins. And so, again, this is all proof to the point that last week, I think you would have been comfortable calling him overrated because the actual numbers of expected wins never matched his real wins. Like when, when you dive down into the analytics, he always had three wins when he was expected to have two, or he'd have two wins when he was expected to have 1.5 wins. So there's an element of luck and it actually bore itself out most in the world rankings because we get all excited about the top of the OWGR and Morikawa went all the way up to number two in the world. And at that point, the golf nerds, the analytics kings, Data Golf is ranking him 19th or 14th or 11th, which is an abnormal discrepancy for someone who is ranked number two in the world for the OWGR to not be in the top 10 on Data Golf is insane. So you'd have been fine to overrate him. But until this weekend, you would have spent the last two years underrating him. So. If we think that 2020 Morikawa when he wins his PGA or 2021 Morikawa when he wins his Open Championship was like peak Morikawa, the best version of him, 2023 was better than both of those guys. His statistical profile is actually better than it's ever been, more well-rounded than it's ever been. Everyone is talking about how Victor Hovland has become this well-rounded player, right? Because he's this insane ball striker who finally learned how to chip and putt. Morikawa is on a similar trajectory. He's just done it without, I guess, being in contention at majors in the way uh, Hovland had. So, Dylan, I would like you to get involved again and kind of list off what you think Morikawa's strokes gain stats look like from like an individual putting to around the green to uh, driving uh, numbers. Let's see. So I would expect him to be in the top five in uh, approaching the green. Mm-hmm. I would expect him to be very accurate off the tee. Um, and I would expect him to be losing strokes around the greens and on the greens. Now, I would not be upset with you for guessing that way because that's kind of who he has been. He is probably going to be a top five ball striker for the rest of his 30s maybe for the rest of the next decade, because that is who he is as an irons player. However, 
his accuracy of his driving has increased since he won those major championships. His distance is actually taking the slightest step back, but that doesn't cost him because he is so accurate. He's a top 20 driver of the golf ball this year. And now for the first time in his career, he is a slightly above average putter, which is the only thing that we have wanted from him. You don't get strokes gain stats at the Zozo in Japan. So you're not going to see that blip jump in his uh, annual strokes gain putting numbers, but he is slightly above average. And like I said, that's the only thing we have wanted from him. When we have seen his ball striking be insane, we've always wondered how freaking many wins can this guy pile up if he just puts it like a normal tour pro. He's currently doing that. All of which is to say the last two years, he had fewer wins than expected. And the years before that, he had more wins than expected. And now I think even though the wins aren't piling up, he is elevating his floor to the point where he will probably rip off a two or three win season next year. And people might be surprised by it, but you actually shouldn't be because he could have been a two or three win this season, right? He won, he, he should have won against Rom in Hawaii, should have won in Detroit against Ricky Fowler, could have won at Torrey Pines. It's easy to forget that really early stretch of tournaments that everyone thinking about him maybe winning the Masters. It's really easy to forget about guys like him when they're just plodding along and being statistically great and not being Jordan Spieth, not being exciting, being the anti-Spieth in so many ways. We sleep on him and then suddenly he wins and we're like, oh wait, crap, he's been really, 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 really good all season. He's been insanely consistent. The best version of himself just hasn't been getting victories. And then there's still a way to undercut him. If you look at his data golf ranking, he has been a top five golfer 12 weeks of his entire career, a couple months of his entire career. He's been top five. So again, I'm rambling at this point, but I asked you, is he overrated or underrated? Last week, you could have said overrated. This week, Mm. it seems like we're saying underrated. I know this is lame, Dylan, but the answer is he is maybe the most properly rated golfer of his generation, in part because there has been basically four Morikawa seasons, two in which he's overperformed, two in which he's underperformed. For a guy who has won six times before his 27th birthday, it feels like only now, since we've had a recent win, we are back in equilibrium. Um, The last few things I need to say about this whole thing that should kind of push it forward are that if you look at his career progression, his evolution, it's another page on data golf that basically charts how many starts you've had and how many times have you finished top 20, top five and wins. You look at that chart and then you see that he is worse than Rory, but he's better than Justin Rose. He is Worse than Spieth, but he's better than how Phil Mickelson started his career. He is absolutely worse than how Vijay Singh began his career, but he is no doubt better than Jason Day, whose peak was as high as basically anybody since Tiger was a golfer, uh, I don't know, playing week to week. So I'm trying to like line him up with people that we think Colin Morikawa could be like. I think about Adam Scott an insane irons player who's got this flawless, repeatable swing, never goes away, will play probably into his late 40s, maybe on the PGA Tour the entire time. Uh, Struggles with his putting, but then again, like Morikawa is turning away from putting struggles, so he's probably better than Adam Scott. In a way, he kind of reminds me of Jim Furyk before we freak out about what Jim Furyk kind of does in in your historical golf mind. He's only a one-time major winner. So suddenly Morikawa is already better than him. Uh, Furyk was one of the five best golfers of his generation. Furyk was better than David Duvall. Furyk was worse than Tiger Woods. He was uh, better than a bunch of guys like Fred Couples towards the end of his career, but worse than Phil Mickelson. He was like right there on the edge of being elite, right? He was right there on the edge of being top five, which is right where... Morikawa is. And so I think if we are to properly rate him, he is like floating on this trajectory between the Adam Scotts and Justin Roses of this world. And then not quite at the Phil Mickelson, uh, Rory McIlroy, Jim Furyk trajectories. And 
my only point is that that is like such a fantastic place to be. That is exactly where you need to be <laughs> if you are a 26-year-old in the PGA Tour. You don't have to shortchange him if we go another 12 months without a Morikawa win, but you also don't have to freak out if he wins twice in the next year. Um, we will continue to underrate him because of what he did so early on, but we also continue to overrate him because he's going to be on a bunch of Ryder Cup teams. He's going to hover in the top 10 to 15 to 20 players in the world rankings, maybe for the next decade. And that probably means one win a year. It probably means 17, 18, 20 career tour wins. And you know what it's going to mean? It's going to mean top five career earnings. And um, that's kind of it. That's the point. It's like he is on this insane trajectory. If we go 12 months without getting another win, it'll be on us if we freak out about it. Thank you for that, Sean. <laughs> Are you, um, I'm tired of talking now. You you can speak. Yeah, I think that I think what I would like to say about Colin, I think I think jives well with what you're saying, which is he's maturing as a golfer, and I think a lot of that has come through his work with Stephen Sweeney, who is you know a short game guru who just just got him connected with a custom one of one putter putter shaft, literally the only one with this custom made shaft in the world got it right before the Ryder cup there are little tweaks that he's making to his game to take control of his game to become more well-rounded uh to iron out some of these things but i think what happens when golfers mature is it's not always as predictable as it's not like whack-a-mole like oh i guess maybe it is like whack-a-mole it's like oh well the putting's all we have to do is just get the putting a little bit better it's like well you get the putting better and it turns out the irons aren't quite as good as they were during your absolute peak. And what Colin has done is a micro version of what Rory did when he was super young, which was win a couple majors by getting super mega hot one week. Colin didn't win his majors by seven, but he outperformed on the greens during both the weeks that he won in a big way, mm-hmm. made everything. Um, and, and when he won the open, he really just just felt like he could not miss on the greens this week at the Zozo. We don't have great stats. They don't do strokes gained over there, but it's pretty clear from looking at uh, the stats that he did not do the thing that he typically does, which is hit a ton of fairways. I think he hit 19 fairways on the week, which has to be a career. Wow. Low. <laughs> um, but he still hit a ton of greens. They weren't big misses. The point being, he was probably not as dialed with his driver as he usually is, but, uh, Got up and down from the sand, I think seven of eight times, and just putted his ball. S- shot the round of the tournament in the final round in contention, 63, no bogeys, uh, which is always a macho move. Do you- so this was a huge moment for Colin Morikawa, even though it's the Zozo, even though I'm sure no one in the U.S. watched in real time. Uh, even though we don't really quite know how to make sense of these fall series victories, mm-hmm. this was a big one. I guess my question that might lead into what we're going to talk about next is like a month ago, did you think he was maturing? Did, did not necessarily you, because you follow the game closer than, uh, you know, 99% of people, but was he getting credit for maturing for his game maturing over the last year? I don't think he was. I don't, I think he wasn't getting credit for it because the way we keep track of these things is through wins. And because some of his other competition, they were winning. And I don't know, I was just writing up the Monday finish, my kind of recap column here. And I was like, the only way to think of this now is like a he was just filling up a, a reservoir with top fives and top tens and trips to contention and, and putting lessons and new gear tweaks. And eventually, finally, on Sunday, the dam just absolutely combusted. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff seemed to accumulate towards one win. I mean, golf, the storylines are not always that linear. Guys can go miscut, miscut, miscut victory. So it's it's not always neat and tidy. But I think in hindsight, we can look at this win and say, well, there was actually a lot of stuff that led up to this that makes it make sense. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying um, to spend the last 10 minutes on. And look, uh, got to rambling at a point, but for every statistic that would argue hey man he's he's getting there he's getting better 
then the the results don't follow. And for every result that would be a crazy blip on the radar, there would be enough things like, well, haven't you? Why haven't you done it more? And uh, it's easy to forget, I guess, that this guy is 26. It's easy to forget that he's younger than John yeah. Rahm, uh, who and now has the same number of majors as John Rahm. He is uh, he's extremely like. We, we, we forget that he had all of those years at Cal and then kind of burst on the scene. We almost gave him credit for going to school the whole time and then being a more well-rounded player and then haven't really given him credit for still being a really well-rounded player ever since. So I guess I'm, I'm just trying to call a little attention because we're, gonna, we're about to forget about him, right? We're about to go away from Colin Morikawa for a couple months. He's probably not going to play on the PGA Tour what maybe he's playing in the hero in late November, early December. I can't even remember uh, if he's in that field, but really we're not going to think about him until Hawaii again when we, when, you know, he choked last year. And so before we get rid of him for the fall, um, just remember that he's been, he's been moving towards something greater. And so if it comes next year, don't be surprised that it did. This is a good final impression. I would say for uh 2023, even if we get a little more at the hero. Uh, but Sean, it, this does lead us into our next segment, which is just going to be breaking down the five biggest questions we're facing this week. And the first one is directly related to what we've seen. I mean, a guy who's been in the, the news the last couple of weeks is Matthew Wolf for reasons we can touch on later, but we'll take him out of what was originally the big three trio coming out of school of Wolf, Morikawa, and Hovland. And, and I would say Wolf's career trajectory has uh, stalled. It's on a bit of hold, but we've seen Victor Hovland skyrocket. Um, Like Morikawa with Steven Sweeney, Victor Hovland has found his guru in Joseph Mayo. That seems to have given him the final ingredient to become a well-rounded golfer to the point where we've been wondering if he is the best golfer currently going in Mm -hmm. the world. So, Sean, I will ask you, who ends up with the better career based on what you know right now in this moment, Victor Hovland or Colin Morikawa? And and we define better career. Better resume, better yep. CV. Who will? At the end of it, you look back and you say, all right, if I'm putting together my, my list of the 30 greatest golfers of all time, mm-hmm. the 100 greatest golfers of all time, here's who ranks higher. It's going to be better CV, better resume is going to be Hovland. So the same age, like we said, same wow. class. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I just went rambled for 10 minutes about why, <laughs> why Morikawa is going to be uh, a top five or six golfer of his generation. Um, I think the reason is because Hovland's peak will be higher. And they're really both kind of – just the beginning of what, what their primes will probably be. Their primes will probably be the next six years of their lives. They both have six tour wins. So in that sense, resumes are the same. One has two majors, that be Morikawa. So Holden would have to catch him on that front. I could see Morikawa having more career wins, but um, I think Hovland will catch him in majors. And I think Hovland will potentially leap him. Um, I think... He, he was as close as you get to winning majors this year uh, as he has ever been. And uh, I, I would be shocked if he doesn't bag one in the next two years. And like I said, it's like a six, seven, eight-year sprint during these primes for these guys, even though like Kepka would argue your prime is much longer than that. I'm going Hovland, um, again, because it feels like he has the sixth gear. I don't know if Morikawa has the sixth in final gear, right? It feels like he sure. almost, yeah. it almost feels like he, like, and when I say what I mean that is like, there's, you can just look at it from a strokes gain perspective. There are players who are capable of averaging 2.3 strokes gained uh, over the course of like a three month stretch mm-hmm. over their competition. And Hovland's capable of doing that. Morikawa has never gotten over two. He's never gotten over two for that, that's, period of time and so that is the sixth gear that is ramping up to say no i'm gonna win you know three out of five tournaments kind of like scotty like rory like rom have done he has the sixth gear and like look justin thomas maybe has it but i don't know if he still has it spieth doesn't have it anymore 
like that sixth gear is this kind of special elite out of elite. Uh, and yeah, it's it re- what gets you to top one or two in the world. Yeah. Really. And, and reminds me, Dylan, this time a year ago, we had Shane Bacon and Kyle Porter on the same podcast and we asked them who is Kate. Yes. <laughs> uh, speaking at different times, Shane was the beginning of the episode. Kyle was the end of the episode. And we asked them like, is Victor Hovland capable of winning like three times in a season? Mm-hmm. And I believe they both said no. <laughs> wow. I, and uh, at least I, I feel like Shane said no. I can't remember exactly, but he kind of was like the fall line. It was like, well, everyone above him is certainly capable. Everyone beneath him probably isn't. And so where mm-hmm. do we put Victor? Um, I think he is now obviously above that line, clearly. Um, but like how long will it last um, in that sixth gear? There's not a lot of guys that have it. I'll take Morikawa. I'll take the other side just Jeez. because that two major head start is is massive. It's monstrous. Even as well as Victor played in the majors this year, he did not get one. It's still somewhat of a binary system we keep track of here. Did you win or did you not is the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, even bigger than that between you know first and second and third. So I'll take Colin, but I will say to your point, Sean, the fact is a year ago, uh, even especially six months ago, this felt like a pretty irrelevant discussion for the first time in a while. It felt like, you know, somehow less important. Uh, these guys, you know, not only not only were they not vying for some of the top spots in the world, it was like, well, who cares? Not relevant to the discussion of, of Wolf versus Morikawa versus Hovland. It was kind of none of the above. Now, those two guys are both on the rise congrats to colin that's that's a solid chunk of the podcast and colin though so um <laughs> the sean go ahead yes i was just gonna add, a closing remark i was just gonna add that like yes we've spent a lot of time fawning over morikawa and that's what we do when people win um but his ball striking his elite elite like his trump card the best thing that he can do in order to stay relevant win tournaments is that like Hovland is is just like one rung beneath him in that department lately. So um, if, if Morikawa is the standard in that statistic, Hovland is close to setting the standard himself. And that just means he's really, really, really good. And is another person where his, like he has achieved less than he has deserved and only recently, only in the last couple months, has he overachieved what he deserved uh, or maybe achieved exactly what he deserved. And so recency bias like floating throughout this entire chat, um, which is a difficult thing to avoid. But um, yeah, I mean, Hovland feels like, and it just feels like a quarterback that is going to win you more games than Morikawa would because he's just that much more talented. Maybe at the end of the show, let's circle back on this. The end of the show, I want I want you to tell me which quarterback Hovland is and which one Morikawa is. So just let that marinate. Okay. Um, Sean, the live season is over. As of yesterday, October 22nd, the Crushers are your team champion. Um, that's what we're, we're carving Crushers into all of our pumpkins this <laughs> holiday season. Thanks to a 65 from Anirban Lahiri and Bryson shot 67 yesterday. They were adding up all four scores. And uh, yeah, they held off the range goats by two. Was Liv's first full season a success? Yes or no? Gosh, it's it's a really good question. You could take it in so many directions because they're still alive. (laughs) That heartbeat is still pumping right um it exists as a thorn in the pga tour side still even though they have reached a framework agreement right to bring these entities under one roof um and nonetheless if that framework agreement doesn't move forward like they will still be a thorn in the side of the pga tour 
you know, there will continue to be rumblings about players departing for one side over the other. And so in that sense, it is a success. Um, there is a very important qualifier that I think makes more sense to me than anything else. And that is to say, like, no one watches Live Golf. Live Golf does not report its TV ratings. Live Golf signed a one-year, I believe, deal with the CW. And so who knows what next year's TV is going to look like. Live Golf did a lot of things this year to kind of augment uh, its availability and accessibility. And yet it was still not an easy thing to watch on Fridays during its first rounds. It was, even on Sundays, kind of not necessarily something that you would turn to because look, Phil Mickelson's not playing great golf and Dustin Johnson wasn't exactly peacocking on that tour, nor was Cam Smith. Um, and so I, yeah, I don't think it's that successful of a season because look, the people who have funded this thing are ready to kind of pivot. They're not necessarily going to shut live golf down, but they're very much ready to join PGA tour enterprises. <laughs> and so that, that doesn't make it seem like, um, it would be a success. If you are working for live golf and are wondering about the future, you have far more questions at the end of this year than you did at the beginning of this year. And some of that's natural based on the, the, you know, proposed merger, but the questions are a little bit harder to predict. And then there are like these tertiary and secondary questions that are addendums to those questions. And so, no, I would say it's not a success because no one's really watching it. And I kind of have, have truly got no clue where it's going. Is that too far forward looking for you? I think that's correct. And I think the reason I agree with you is because look, we're in a world where things can explode quickly. We're in a, a viral world. We're in a world where Colorado has played a few of the most watched cable college football games in history. And Liv is basically designed to channel that same energy, to be new, to be energetic, to do all these things that I think on paper we would agree have some merit, have some intrigue to them. So the fact that they have not really captured the sports imagination, that they have not really won fans over, that there's a certain hollowness to all of this. I don't think either of us will argue that, look, this has this has been very lucrative for players that have joined. I think a lot of the guys that have gone over there, I don't doubt that they that, you know, some of them are being truthful when they're saying, oh, they're having fun. They are <laughs> enjoying all this money they've made, et cetera, et cetera. But as a product, as a revolutionizing force in golf, I think that they have still succeeded more as a disruptor than they have as a standalone product. Is that impatient after yeah, a year and two thirds? Are we being impatient? Yeah, I think that it's, I think that it's probably impatient and I, and I want with our next question to get to a couple of things that we remembered from this live season but I think so far I do not understand a path forward for live and in that way for that reason it, it doesn't feel like this year was a complete success because I just don't understand how it continues are you uh, are we not it, allowing ourselves to to think about 2024 being even more of a transitional year than 2023 was where live golf. Absolutely. How many transitional years can we have? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you kind of asked that to people who spend too much time at home after college, like, are we going to move on? And like, you're going to become a really <laughs> real person now. Um, uh, 2023 is absolutely a transitional year. We were told it was just a transitional year for the PJ Tour. Now it very much looks forward like it's going to be transitional for both enterprises, either under the same roof or under different roofs. And I guess I just wonder, like, it will exist next year. Absolutely. There are contracts that are ending on Live Golf and a number that will continue forward. Um, if they can sign any more players up, it continues to nag at the PGA Tour. They will have their first promotion and relegation uh, over the next few months. That is further down the line, uh, further along the line that they wanted to be on. Um, and so are we not allowing them to make more 
baby steps? Are we demanding too much of a direct competition with the tour right now? I continue to look at the standings and we're going to do that here in a little bit and think, hey, some of your highest paid players, some of your most marketable players, some of your most important players are still playing shit golf. Like last year, <laughs> everyone played shit yeah. golf. This year, Brooks Kepka did not. Bryson Shambo did not play bad golf. They were playing really, really good golf. Taylor Gooch, one of your best players, like actually probably the best live golfer this year on those events, didn't play good golf outside of those events. So like it was, it was not a baby wave. It was not a tsunami. 2023 for live golf was like a, a wave that you could surf on a little bit into next year, but like we don't really know how the surf is going to be next year. And yeah, that unpredictability or lack of predictability. Uh, yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to be confident with it all. To be clear, like, you know, if you're listening to this saying, Oh my God, these guys are just riding for the PGA tour. Like if we applied these same standards to the Zozo championship this weekend, especially from a broadcast perspective, it would not have fared well. I mean, I, I was up late watching some of that golf. It, it, it does not translate super well uh, over television. It, it doesn't feel like you have the full weight of the uh, broadcasting efforts going into that one. So I'm, I'm not just, I'm not just grading this against the PJ tour and saying PJ tour, good live bad. It's more like live is shooting to be something uh, bigger, greater, everything is larger about it. And it hasn't yet met yeah. that goal. So like, Sean, get, with that in mind, get more on our radar. Don't, don't hover 2023. It was live hovered 2022. It splashed this year. It hovered, get more on our radar, sign someone else. If you want us to get all in, like, do more. To think of something that to, would splash and hover. You're mixing your metaphors here. All right, no, no, but no, no, Sean, no, 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 like, like splash just in the sense it's splash on the scene, hovered as in like stayed level, and mm, you know, slightly submerged. Yeah, it's just kind of like you know, jump into the water, hover for a little bit, and now take off. Put a couple, you know, sixty mile per hour engines on the back of that boat, and then zoom away. And then take us with you. But until this point, they haven't done that. What will you remember from this live season? Question number three out of five. Uh, I will remember just how impressive the Masters was from a live perspective. Mm. And how um, Phil Mickelson freaked everyone out on Sunday when he damn near won the Masters and how Brooks Kepka had people kind of on edge for numerous reasons, one being the rules of golf at the Masters, but also just leading the tournament through um, through three days by four strokes. Um, that's when it felt like Liv peaked to me because even though Brooks won the PGA Championship a month later, it didn't even feel like a, a peak for live anxieties among the PJ tour faithful because Brooks was given plenty of opportunities to make it about live golf. And he didn't, he didn't at all. It was about Brooks Kepka, and, you know, even in his public facing appearances since then, one of those being last week on, I think that, yeah, not Logan, interested Logan Paul <laughs> podcast. Um, not interested at all in making this about anything more than the money that he was getting and kind of, you know, setting his future for his family. Like that's tough that that's the shining moment for live golf in my mind this year. But it was, it was a very interesting time that Sunday at Augusta national considering, um, where we were in the world. I, I'll never forget talking to Jimmy Dunn very, very briefly at the masters that Sunday. Jimmy Dunn being the guy who has helped and is helping or orchestrate a merger between the Saudi PIF and the PGA Tour. I asked Jimmy Dunn that that Sunday morning, hey, who do you want to win this thing? Rom or Kepka? And he said, Well, obviously John Rom. Definitely not interested in Brooks Kepka, a live golfer winning that tournament. Um and so 
he had everyone on edge. And so that is, that's the defining live memory for me. It's just kind of how weird things were getting Sunday at Augusta. I think that's really good. I think that's strong. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would add, yeah, the PGA Sunday to that for sure when Kepka broke through and it was like, whoa, this is just a reality. Um, I would add Bryson DeChambeau's 58 was sort of a moment that felt like it penetrated the sports news world a little bit, even though that's still a bit of an odd one uh, to me. I don't think you know, it was sort of strange evidence of like, oh yeah, people are still playing really good golf here on live. Um, but yeah, that was kind of a cultural moment. I think back to this idea that live lives greatest force has still been as a disruptor. I mean, June 6th certainly stands out as the golf day and golf moment of the year. Um, I think strangely the most compelling bit of live so far this year, and I'm not necessarily proud to admit this, because I'm not sure it's a good thing for these people or the world is Brooks and Matthew Wolf and Brooks just dogging on Wolf again and again, a guy who has been open about his struggles with mental health, with positivity on the course, et cetera, et cetera. And Brooks just being like, yeah, I, I only have three guys on my four person team. You know, he's that he's given up on Wolf that he tried as hard as he could. Some people don't want to be helped. That kind of interpersonal team drama is probably the most intriguing thing that Liv could get going. But again, we don't really know that much about it because it's still like a, it's really only Brooks forcing that storyline mm -hmm. through press conferences that we even know about that to begin with. There's not a lot of, of presence around uh, Liv and it's mostly just, you know, rah, rah, life is good. Pretty um, like vibe coming from there. Yeah. The the defining memory for Live Golf this year, um for like the image is yeah. un it's undoubtedly CNBC nine AM uh central time, I believe ten AM East Coast time, June sixth, Jay Monahan sitting next to Yasser Al Ramayan yeah. on the television screens of millions of televisions across the country, that is an image that uh, will define 2023 in golf, actually probably more than any other image. And so that, in that sense, um, that, was, that was a live golf moment, even if it wasn't really a live golf moment. <laughs> you know, I believe the graphic that CNBC used was you know, not exactly the most accurate in the moment announcing a live golf and PGA tour merger. Um, that said it was, it was, um, shape shifting, I guess, for the entire golf pro golf season. That includes what the LPGA tour players were talking about. That includes what senior champions tour players were thinking about. Obviously what live golfers were thinking about is they, went over to Spain to play in Valderrama. Um, obviously what players were thinking on the uh, PJ tour up in Canada, like it, it made everyone uh, rethink. It was, it was absolutely a, where were you when moment golf doesn't have a whole lot of those. And then the final thing I would add, Sean is uh, Adelaide and the, wait, was it Chase Kepka hit the <laughs> hole in one? At the party oh yeah. Hole? Do you, do you really remember this moment? If you have to ask which player hit the ace? <laughs> well, it's not a great sign, but I think that the whole vibe coming out of that weekend was like, all right, this is proof of concept. Can live golf fill in the cracks going to uh, places worldwide that are golf starved where the people are saying, Oh, please, please bring us the professional golf. And they will bring it. And not only will they bring it, they will, uh, yeah, they'll bring a big event. They will do what they can to build it out to make it seem as big as possible. That was the first real time where it was like, you guys are tapping into something. Uh, something here. Don't you, don't you think so, that that's what, like, to me, that's what told me. Because <laughs> the, the, the brain just starts sprinting on June 6th. What does this mean? What could a schedule look like? You know, Jay Monahan doesn't necessarily want live golfers back on the PGA tour for free. I don't think Rory McIlroy did either. 
But a number of rank and file players are like, yeah, well, we want Brooks Kepka back on some level if this is a for-profit entity. So Adelaide, that moment, it being internationally, it happening really before the glut of the, the PGA Tour season, uh, championship season, that is what told me like, gosh, these two things could exist. They could coexist um, mm. together. They could, There could be a PGA Tour season that, um, is seven months long and a live golf season that is two months long and suddenly yeah like a barnstorming tour yeah there is your nine to ten month pro golf calendar year it allows for two months at the end of the year where you don't really need it that's your football season and then everyone comes back in january like that's the that is what made it feel like hey to your point proof of concept that's a concept you would want to add to your pga tour um, portfolio to PGA Tour Enterprises. Um, the flip side of that is that it did not exist to that extent here in Chicago, did not exist to that extent in Orlando, did not exist um, with a whole ton of hype this weekend, uh, this past weekend in Miami. And so is Live Golf's greatest value using Saudi money to take elite golf to Australia, to Spain, to uh, Saudi Arabia, but also to South Korea um, and these places that the PGA Tour kind of only goes when it makes absolute most sense, when there is a sponsor paying for it. Um, That's a future that I would be comfortable with. I'd be down with. Who else is down with that? No one can say, Sean, that you did not provide a path forward. (laughs) Um, All right, question four. This comes courtesy a Rory McIlroy interview in Austin this weekend with the BBC. Uh, we're talking about Joe LaCava. He said, things happen in the heat of the moment. Tensions were high. Speaking of the uh, Hatgate, Patrick Cantlay, Ryder Cup waving incident on the 18th green. Uh, he said, Joe came into the European team room on the Sunday night and had a drink and a chat. I've had a great relationship with Joe over the years when he caddied for Tiger, and that wasn't going to change. For me, the incident happened. I purposely didn't want anyone or want to meet anyone on the Sunday morning of the Ryder Cup because I wanted what had happened to fuel me for that day. My whole focus was let's make sure Europe win the Ryder Cup and then we will sort all the other stuff out afterwards and it's all fine. Sean, with a few weeks of hindsight, I think three weeks and two days of hindsight, who did bad in this situation, if anyone? Who did bad? Uh, Joe LaCava did a lot of things wrong. I think the evidence against him is pretty easy to see for yourself. It's video evidence. He is essentially parading in the middle of the green. He is absolutely close to Rory moving forward with the Ryder Cup and like <laughs> measuring his putt um, to tie. And it's not even like... You know, if if Patrick Cantley was a little bit close, it's a lot easier to understand that. He is the man in the actual arena. He is the one who hit the putt. He didn't do nearly as much as Joel Akava did. That would have been a a real moment if it had been Cantley doing the same thing. And so uh, Joel Akava did a lot lot wrong there. Rory did not look good in in the car park afterwards. I mean, like, you give a half an hour to any incident and everyone should kind of cool off. He did not. And I would almost guarantee, I don't know this for a fact, but that Rory has no clue that there were cameras in the parking lot, right? The Ryder Cup has these sanctimonious team rooms, right? That, you know, we can't let the media in here. We can't let Netflix in here. Like it, this yeah, is, yeah. this is the place. It's a little sanctuary. Yeah. And, uh, he was outside of that, but still in the car park. And no one was really in the car park all week. No, like we Listen weren't allowed. Listen to you talking about car parks. You're <laughs> so British all of a sudden. No one was there. Um, we weren't able to get access to that all week. They had no. like Italian police officers at every corner of the neighborhood. So he had to feel very comfortable in what he was doing. And he felt so comfortable as to absolutely light up Bones Mackay. Bones? And to be pulled back 
be so lit up that he had to be pulled back by burly Shane Lowry. And so, like, Rory did bad too. You know who else did bad? The people that were apparently reporting that that Rory and Joe had made up before mm. before Sunday's final round. I mean, that look, you and I as reporters get information at times from governing bodies, from agents, from players, from caddies that are often sent out there to kind of about yeah, something's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Calm the waters. They, they may earn an official drop zone slap on the wrist, Sean. <laughs> I don't even know who, who we're slapping. I'm, I'm not sure whose wrist we're slapping. Me but the neither. point the point is, like I saw Rory with my own eyes, I can report it, walk down the stairs onto the driving range and walk past Joe Lacava with no intent of tapping him on the shoulder with no intent of saying hi. If Joe LaCava turned to him, I don't think Rory would have said a single word to him, wouldn't have referenced him. Rory bulldozed him like Patrick Reed at the Dubai Desert Classic. He bulldozed, like flew by Cantlay's spot on the driving range. And I was like shocked that, oh yeah, these guys, we we hammered it out. It's all good. No, it, it wasn't all good in that moment. And you know what? On Sunday night, Rory reminded us, no, it wasn't all good. I didn't talk to him before that. So anyways, no one really did good in those moments. And as we continue to see kind of trickle out more reports about this Cantlay Xander payment issue, um, there's certainly some people that probably owe Jamie Weir an apology. Mm. Probably a little bit. Zach Zach Johnson maybe being first and foremost for like looking <laughs> looking at Jamie Weir in the press conference and saying whoever mm. said that whoever did that that's bad journalism as if ZJ is our arbiter of journalistic standards. Um, Golfers are talking more and more about about what constitutes good and bad journalism. And it's don't a, like it. It's a funny water to end up in. Yeah. Um, I would say, Sean, yes, you're, I think that was a great assessment. Although I think big picture other than LaCava, yeah, they, they each kind of overstepped, but ultimately uh, this was pretty good times. Like how about, a, no one, no one did so bad. Ultimately, no. this was a, probably a net good for the sport. Like, like, you know, this happens in other sports where there are fights and you have to figure out like who is really in the wrong and who is responding to yeah. whom and who gets a bigger suspension than the other players. Like, and is any of it unforgivable? Sure. Um, in this case, I think forgivable. Yeah, I think it's all forgivable. I think if we're handing out suspensions. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we uh, I think we slap LaCava on the wrist with a two-tournament suspension. God, yeah, this is a great, great I think, way to look at it. I think Rory gets a um, – I think you have to give him just like a one-tournament suspension for how he treated – You do? Yeah, just for how he – you know, his response was a half an hour later, went after Joe Mm. uh, or Bones McKay in the parking lot, was so heated. It sucks that Rory, you know, but like so many flags are are thrown in the NFL on Sundays from the person who reacts, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not always – He may just get ejected for like the duration of the contest. (laughs) No additional suspension. But it's like, hey, go cool out. You know, Hit the showers. if you were Patrick Cantley, wouldn't you sign up for that? Like, hey, you, Rory's ejected for the rest of the Ryder Cup. <laughs> now that's another victory for the Americans because they reacted. And, you know, look, I just lose my caddy for a day. You know, I'll have, I'll have Steve Stricker carry my bag on Sunday. Imagine Slugger White out there just, <laughs> you're out of here. You, gone. Um, all right. Last of our five questions here, Sean. Rory said in the same interview that golf could learn quite a bit from Formula One. What could golf learn from Formula One? And you can decline to answer if you don't watch any Gosh, Formula you know, One. You know, you're the F1 guy. I'm the, like, Premier League pro soccer guy. So mm-hmm. can I just kick it back to you? Like, what can sure. golf learn yeah, from, yeah. from Formula One? I'm going to keep this really simple for now because, um, you know, it's something we can dive into more at a different time. But I think the biggest thing that golf could learn from F1 is to make your events big massive i mean we've been talking about really about how golf should be a bit more like formula one for years on this podcast by we apparently i mean me um but there should be fewer and they should feel bigger there should be big events around them it should feel like a cultural touch point 
what's sort of strange and ironic is that a lot of the stuff that Liv is trying to do and has been working towards is an F1 copycat system. Everything looks looks and feels the same. The scoring system is the same. The team colors and logos look the same. But it doesn't quite work because you would need the full force of the sport behind it. And you would need you would need these live team events to be woven in at Bay Hill and Memorial and things that have pre-existing context and importance. You have not gotten to that point yet. Um, Question. Yes. As someone who doesn't follow F1, I understand like who the big names are. Um, yeah. If you had, if I had to, if I had to come up with 10 F1 drivers, wouldn't be able to five. No, maybe I heard that Lewis Hamilton had something crazy happen this weekend. Disqualified. He got tossed. My question is like, how many F1 drivers are there? Because we like to make these cross sport analogies, comparisons, mm-hmm. questions. Why can't golf be more like baseball and institute well, shot clocks? Why yes, can't? this is and, part of it. There's only 20, Sean. There's 10 yeah. teams with two drivers each. But like how many drivers are there in the world? Like, aren't there people trying to get on F1? Mm, there are, yes. Is F2? Like, is, that, is that a thing? Okay, so how many drivers are in F2? Uh, I mean, similar numbers. Okay. And then like another 20 in F3. Yeah, there's like, there's probably like a few hundred people that are sort of driving in this ecosystem. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I guess that's the thing is like <clears throat> the, there's too much institutional history of pro golf excellence being defined by beating 120 or 130 or 143 mm-hmm. other players there's too much randomness as well within the ecosystem of that that like hierarchy where, yeah, you know, number 100 over the course of four rounds playing this wacky, dumb sport, like <laughs> Joel Damon's going to beat Rory once in a while over four rounds. He's going to do it. And so um, that is that's why it's so hard for golf to just like flip a switch and become more like F1 and not yeah. cater, not cater to numbers 60 through 160, where it's very easy for F1 to do that. Um, it, I think it, that's it totally correct. It feels too I, pie I think, in the sky. No, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I just think that they could adopt some of the sensibility of like, Hey, we're coming to town and we're bringing a massive party with us. This is an event. These are our superstars. I think the PGA Tour defaults to sort of a, ah, oh, shucks, come on down to the state fair <laughs> sort of vibe. And come there could be a little bit of like, hey, here's Carlos Sainz. He's a freaking superstar. The way that the Ryder Cup does with like, hey, here's Bob McIntyre. And this week, this sure, he may not be a top 50 golfer in the world, but this week he is in the spotlight. He's the dude. Um, you know, Rolex is throwing a party and, uh, Tom Brady and Serena are both there, mm-hmm. and that, I think that's where maybe that's what the TGL is going to look like. There's going to be just Palm Beach. Cl- I don't know. We we can't get into TGL this week. <laughs> Sean, one quick one to finish here. I want us to dive into the. Well, actually, we were thinking of filing filing some sort of uh, cease and desist against Liv for co-opting the term the drop zone but i think that's probably on hold in the meantime i want us to do a quick draft it's it's about to be maybe it already is free agency season on live Mm -hmm. and uh, there is something called the open zone players that are not relegated but also not uh fully exempt in the next season so this is guys outside the top 24 but inside the top 45 i want you to i want us to draft four players make a team from this list yeah but you, and, uh, you can't I choose the like captains to, and you uh you can't choose the captains because they're already on a team so i would like you to award you the first selection so there's there's like 19 players right um to choose from yeah with there's the first roughly pick, the, maybe the not pick. quite even that many first pick i'm going with I don't care about going with Abe answer Dylan. He is the highest Gosh. ranked available player. He, yeah, he is still very young, very, very good. Uh, just a solid all around golfer. And I don't know if I want to make him my team captain, but drafting him first put, certainly puts him up for the running. So you can, you can go two and three here. 
All right. Yeah, we'll go snake draft. Um, I'm going to get my boy, David Pooge. Fine. A young Fine rising me. star. I was, this is definitely an issue for Liv. I think make, creating its own stars is, is not something it's quite been able to do yet, but he seems quite good at golf. And um, mm-hmm. Andy Ogletree. Gross. Much maligned Andy Ogletree I can't believe finished you did that. last in the first live event. You look at, uh, you, welcome to the squad. <laughs> you pass on a lot of people before you land on Andy Ogletree, Dylan. You cannot beat me in this draft. All right. I'm well, s- hey, good I'm news. S- you get the next two. So picks. sorry. Uh, give me Thomas Peters, who was a top 40 golfer in the official world golf ranking before. Yeah, that's probably the correct pick. Yeah, it's probably the correct pick. And. Um, I'm gonna hold off. I'm gonna hold off. I think you're. I think you're gonna miss someone that matters to me. Um, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna scoop up some value, and you know what? I'm just gonna go with Matthew Wolf because his ceiling, at least in terms of live golf, is still kind of sneaky high. Like he had a couple top five finishes this year. Definitely three top tens this year. Mentally, at the end of the year, wasn't really jiving with his captain. But now under Captain Abe Answer and alongside it, you know. Former Ryder Cupper Thomas Peters, Matthew Wolf is—he's um, going to find a way. I don't. Was, does Thomas Peters on a Ryder Cup team? I don't even know if that's real. Either way, um, answer Hell Wolf. Yeah, he, and, was. he was. He was good at one. Answer Wolf and Peters uh, is way better than Huge <laughs> Ogletree and whatever the hell you draft next. <laughs> you just don't understand. This, this is system. your segment, and you went in that you direction. Understand how to how to put together a team. Um, All right, my final two picks. Eugenio Chikara. Yep. We're building from the bottom, Sean. Sure. And uh he had a he had a couple points earning finishes this year. And then I'm gonna round it out with a guy who was actually playing really good golf um before leaving for live, even though people kind of lump him into that washed up category. It's Paul Casey. <laughs> Go for it, Dylan. Is he your captain? Um. Yeah, he's my captain, and I would if he's still available as an assistant captain. I would like to get Graham McDowell. I realize looked looks a lot like kind of 2004 era Kevin Millar. Well, that's good. Weekend, so yeah, I wasn't going to draft Graham McDowell. Um, the person you're missing is a guy who finished it higher than Graham McDowell, despite playing only five live events this year. It's Sam Horsfield, Dylan, young up and coming kid who was injured this year. Uh, mm-hmm. who actually everyone in Live Golf probably wants him on their team. He just ends up kind of playing alongside the uh, the Poulter, Westwood, Stenson crew. They've got three captains. If you've got three captains, you don't have a single captain. Horsefield is rounding out my team that is just definitely going to beat the brakes off of yours. I'm sorry <laughs> to, to inform you of that. But you have gone Paul Casey, Pooj, Shakara, two guys who were playing college golf 18 months ago and then rounded out by Andy Ogletree who you know what it is with him I don't have anything he's on the rise Sean international series king you you must be on the rise when you bottom out and you're not in the top 1500 in the world that's Andy Ogletree tough tough for you to 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 lose like that in, in your segment but you know, if that was boring for anybody, it is the last segment of today's show. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I would say, Sean, that we there are six players we know who will probably not be on live next year. Uh, Jed Morgan, and then the three guys that got three other guys that got relegated who also shot the three highest scores yesterday. That would be uh, Chase Kepka, James Pyatt, who shot eighty, and Siwon Kim shot seventy nine, uh, and then the two of us. So that would be six yep but it's been um, great chatting with you do you have anything to leave the listeners with i think colin morikawa is the trevor lawrence qb comp he is going to be very very good might bag a super bowl who knows but it might be incumbent upon the people around him his floor pretty darn high is his ceiling best in the league i just don't think it is and then Victor Hovland, if you'll allow me, 
I think very, very similar, similar level of talent just needs to round out these rough edges. Give me the comp of Josh Allen. Yes, that's what I was going to say. I'm right with you there. Really, really good at his absolute best. Gosh, sometimes he's going to do some things that are going to puzzle you. Um, Josh Allen's kind of still working through that this year, and Victor Hovland worked through that this year. But give me Josh Allen and Trevor Lawrence. Um, I I don't even know if that's the proper comp for Morikawa, but it feels right right now. Hit us up with some feedback. Who'd Sean miss in the quarterback and crew? Um, thank you guys for listening. Sean, I'm off. I'm off. Anything for the kids. We can go play in the charity golf tournament in the drizzle. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. See you next week. <laughs>